You're listening to The Morning Muster, where we get sailors together to listen to the weather report and, well, to talk about the most important topics of the day. So grab a cup of hot chai. Or a coffee. I'm Teresa Carey. And I'm Ben Carey. This podcast is produced by Morse Alpha. We offer rigorous coastal and offshore sail training expeditions. Check out morsealpha.com. Today's episode is sponsored by Fiorentino. Fiorentino makes smart products that slow or stop your boat's drift during a storm or mechanical failure at sea. They have an improved parachute anchor and a shark drogue, which can be used as either a speed limiting drogue or for emergency steering. We've actually tested both aboard Rocinante when we were doing emergency preparedness drills. They were easy to store and deploy and really super stout. And Fiorentino is offering a discount if you mention the Morning Muster podcast. Find them at para-anchor.com. All right. So I'm really excited to talk to you guys about nighttime and limited visibility travel because for myself, I'm really passionate about this topic. And I also find it incredibly challenging and incredibly fun. Um, and so I'm, I recognize that every time I'm out there in the night or in the fog, I always learn something new or get a new sense of how to travel in that way. And I think I'm going to learn something from both of you. And I'm excited about that too. So I was wondering, Julia and Dan, if you could start by just uh, introducing yourself and telling a little bit about your sailing background. Hi, I'm Dan Pease. I've been sailing and around this coast and others for, I don't know, 50 years. I mean, almost every job I've ever had has been has been on the water, except for mowing lawns as a young kid. <laughs> You know, from bailing boats at the local yacht club to uh, spending a couple of years at the Coast Guard Academy and sailing on the Eagle and on ship, and then coming back to Maine and crewing on a uh, windjammer, and then also building boats in the winter when we weren't sailing, and then eventually had the opportunity to purchase my own passenger windjammer, which we sailed for. 18 years, summers here in Maine, and then uh, some of those winters I went tugging, and eventually after we sold the schooner, I went tugging full-time for 10 or 12 years, so that that's kind of my background in a nutshell. Um, my name is Julia Carlton, and I uh, have been sailing for not quite as long as Dan, but most of my life anyway. Uh, I won't tell you how many years that is, um, but it's more than 30. <laughs> Um, anyway, lots of, you know, dinghy sailing, cruising with my parents on a Bristol 32 when I was a kid, uh, then went into teaching racing and that sort of stuff in college. And then, uh, and then I started working for some more expedition-based sailing, including Outward Bound, Ocean Classroom Foundation, uh, Outward Bound was in Maine and Florida and a couple seasons everywhere in between. And then, uh, the schooner sailing was pretty much from Canada down to, uh, like Trinidad, um, and and all of the Caribbean over to um, over to like Costa Rica a couple seasons, um, but mostly the Eastern Seaboard, and um, and I definitely have cruised a lot as well, like in my own personal time, um, and just enjoy being out on the water. Now I am mostly on the water during the day in fair weather conditions because I work in an office, but unfortunately uh, that's the way it goes because I have a cute little toddler. What about your experience on the uh, research vessels? Oh, thank you. That's a large one I missed. <laughs> I worked in Antarctica um, from 2011 to uh, 2018. And uh, at the, the reason I probably left that out is I was um, deck crew. So I was supporting 
scientists uh, working on the back deck. Um, so I was not in the bridge for, for those operations, but I did drive the Zodiacs a lot in varying conditions of uh, visibility, but that's a bit more blind because we're kind of tooling around icebergs and such, but trying to stay close to the mothership. Cool. All right. So sometimes people sail all their life and never sail in the night or in the fog, never even run across fog sometimes. And I think here in Maine, especially, it's an expectation that if you're going to ever sail, you have to, you're going to end up winding up in the fog at some point. And I think that's one of the reasons I come back to Maine year after year, but I think it's also one of the main reasons why people are like, I'm never going to sail in Maine, the fog and the lobster pots. Um, and so I wonder with you guys, what camp are you in? Are you, when the fog rolls in, are you like, oh yes. Or are you like, oh no, not again. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, you know what? I, I, I think my plan is to, uh, go when it's necessary. I've heard people say that you should totally avoid going or sailing in fog unless you absolutely have to do it. Now, who, who decides where the where to draw the line between have to do it? If you're on a windjammer and you're entertaining guests and you don't want to sit around in a harbor for days on end, you might you might go out in the fog and pick a safe, careful route. But I've also towed barges coastwise in the thick fog and where it's not very much fun, but. Mm-hmm. might kind of be a necessity. Yeah, I think um, it's funny that question coming from a fellow Outward Bounder because I feel like it's a, such a part of the Outward Bound and Maine world because we we definitely we, we definitely can't stop when it's foggy because we have to get places and that's kind of the core portion of the course is, you know, getting going sailing and teaching these skills and everything. Um, so when it's a foggy day, it's always a little bit stressful in the morning and I'm always like getting over the hump to get it out there, get out there. But then once you're out there and you do take all, you know, follow all the steps, be diligent about dead reckoning, et cetera, et cetera. And then you get to the end of the day, you're like, Oh, I made it. And it's such a great accomplishment. So, and I even felt that on a charter this summer um, with my family, it, you know, it's funny. Anytime fog comes up, it, you know, it raises the stakes a ton and it makes you more vigilant, but it also, I think makes you have to be a better mariner, which I think is always good. Um, And then when you get to the end of it, you can relax and not have a cocktail if you're with the students, but if you're with your family, you can have a glass of wine and relax. And feel accomplished and proud. <laughs> yeah, definitely. And so you said, Julia, um, that it makes you a better mariner. And I was wondering if you could elaborate on that. Like, what kinds of what did what exactly did you do you mean by that? Yeah. So, I mean, when the conditions are fair, you can definitely get lazy. Of course, I think as a mariner, it's important to never let that happen, even when the conditions are fair. Um, But it's easier to let that happen because we're all human. So when, you know, when you're out in limited visibility, whether it's fog or nighttime, I mean, you obviously have to be super diligent about a lookout. And and then from navigation there, you can't really make any errors. And then, of course, keeping track of traffic. So there's just a lot more that you have to manage all at one time. And, uh, and, and, of course, the stakes are higher if you miss something. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's certainly a heightened awareness that is necessary in limited visibility. And I'll just go so far as to say that I, I don't think I've ever run aground when it was foggy. And we'll just leave it at that. <laughs> you know, I can totally second that. <laughs> and, and leave it at that. <laughs> that whole complacency in fair weather. 
<laughs> Absolutely. Whether it's whether it's because in the of course in the fog you're really paying attention. It's very important. You've got to know where you are. You've got to know your surroundings. But you know when it's when it's clear out, you're kind of in a sensory overload. There's a lot of things to see, and you know you can your mind can drift. I think. Mm-hmm. I think the only time I've ever run aground was in the fog. So what does that <laughs> say about me? <laughs> um, all of us, all three of us, have done a lot of fog travel with very, very minimal assistance from electronic devices like chart plotters and cell phones and and things like that. Maybe because we're a little older or maybe because we've chosen or have been required not to bring things like that. Um, And so, Julia, you were talking about in the fog, you can't make any errors. Or maybe, Dan, you said that you can't make any errors. you got to have a lookout. And so I wanted to ask, I wanted to go into some of those details right now, a little bit of like, how do you approach the fog? What When you're getting ready at the beginning of the day, what are the things you're going to set up for the day that are different than a fair weather day? Well, I think not, nowadays you you might as well use everything that you have, you know, everything you have in your, in your uh, briefcase or whatever, you know, as far as GPS plotters and radar. If you don't have that, then you need to plan ahead a little bit and get some routes out there. Uh, you have to be a little more diligent with, with the state of the, the tide and the current, whereas nowadays you can get lazy with all the, all your electronics, but still a good idea to really, like, uh, like Julia said, keep a dead reckoning going because you can u- lose your electronics at any moment. So, Dan, before when you were sailing back on the schooners long ago how, and didn't have those chart plotters and iPads and things that, it, that accessible to you, how did you do it then? Well, actually, when I took over the schooner, I did have a Loran C, <laughs> which mm-hmm. if you ever use one of those, they're dreadful, but, but they're better than nothing. But that had just uh, two sets of numbers. So it wasn't like it was immediate, although you could plot a course from a, one buoy's plot to another buoy's plot and and hope that it was going to be right. That being said, I had a machine that had some kind of random error in it, so you couldn't really depend on mm-hmm. it. It could, could get you into trouble. You know, Dan, they're, they're um, actually working on bringing back a new version of Loran. Really? To replace GPS, yeah, because um, the uh, government has been working on this for some time to to bring back. They're calling it Eloran, enhanced Loran, because GPS is incredibly vulnerable to being scrambled and in, in interference. The pendulum swings. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, it's all just a scam to make us buy new equipment. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> Probably more likely. <laughs> as long as they don't take it all away from us, because it's a—I'll tell you what—it's a lot more fun in the fog if you have if you have electronics. Of course, it depends on what you're doing. If you're commercial and you have to be there, then the electronics are more or less a necessity. I'm going to say. But if you're if you're a pleasure boater and you or a kayaker or something like that, and you just want to go and and dead reckon and that, that's mm-hmm. that's fine. 
So, so Dan, um, I know you said you had Loran during that time, but Ben said that when he sailed with you, he distinctly remembers a time where the fog rolled in suddenly and you said, ready about, and you tacked away from shore and you had your chart in front of you and you were thinking real hard and then you tacked back to shore and then back out again and back and forth. And then eventually you said, let's drop the anchor and you started rowing about to try to figure out where you're at. I remember that distinctly. <laughs> I also remember, remember sailing as crew when that happened on another boat that I did, that I was working on, and I thought, well, this is stupid. Why did, why did the captain do this? And then I, a few years later, I realized, yeah, we were beating down the bay um, in the fog, and things just didn't seem right. And um, with a big old cantankerous, slow-turning, hard-to-stop schooner, that seemed like the thing to do, to get our bearings. Mm-hmm. I don't know what people thought. I guess I didn't really care, mm-hmm. but I didn't want to make a a really foolish mistake either. I know that both of you guys have skills in traditional navigation, compass and paper chart. And so I wonder how important are those skills to you, even when you're using radar or chart plotter? And not just as a backup, because let's say your radar and your chart, I mean, sometimes people carry backups to the chart plotters and backups to the backups. And then you always have your iPhone too, (laughs) sometimes. So, you know, let's say the technology is perfect. It's not going to break down. How important are having those skills, even in those moments? Oh, I think still basically very important. You should always be taking use of every landmark you see and double checking it's hard, it's hard to think that at this point that a GPS plotter could be wrong, but I guess it could be. It's also, uh, you know, only one piece. Like, I, I definitely remember sailing with somebody that was, <clears throat> they had just gotten a new GPS, so they were super into it. Um, and, uh, and their, you know, their head was so in the GPS, like, they were kind of missing the bigger picture, you know? So, like, as much as you can trust it, you, you can't, it can never be your only tool. You also have to trust everything that you're seeing and observing. And as you said, Dan, you know, cross-checking what you're seeing with the GPS with what you can see in reality. And I remember, yeah, we just called it, like, GPS head, because he was identifying, he was saying something with something, and it was so obvious. If you weren't looking at the GPS and were just looking at the chart, that, that something was actually something else. And it was super obvious if you had your head up, but if you have your head stuck in the electronics, then you can kind of get lost in there. That was one thing I learned. Mm-hmm. Um, what was the original question? Sorry, I, I may have missed that. Oh, no, I was just wondering like, what the value is of having those hard skills, those traditional navigation skills, given that char plotters and radars are so effective right now. The technology is so advanced. I think I, for myself, I find that, well, with our, with our sail training expeditions, we, we don't turn the chart plotter on until the second half of the trip or even the last day, depending on how long the trip is. But we do a lot of traditional navigation. And the reason for that is because um, like what you were saying, kind, Julia, kind of what you're talking about with the GPS head is that I think if you're, if you're, um, if you look around you and you've learned how to plot a course or take a bearing invisibility or no vis- or, or fog or anything, something like that, then you're going to also learn other skills such as reading the wind on the water or the weather or just being observant in other ways that will help you that a chart plotter does not provide for you. That's so true. I mean, I've, and I've spent so much more time doing it traditionally that I actually, I have to 
get more practiced at doing it with um with instruments um just and and i would agree that uh trusting your own skills your i mean your big your picture is going to be bigger no matter what you're going to be learning more you're going to be uh, you know a there's probably less room for error because you're just using more tools. You know, it's not a quick answer. It's like anything in life, right? Mm -hmm. Like if you get a quick answer, you take shortcuts and you're not going to get, you know, as much out of it. That being said, of course, the most, the safest thing is to use all of your tools and mm -hmm. the GPS is going to calculate your position way quicker than you are. So <laughs> it's a good piece of the puzzle. Um, so both of you guys have spent your whole sailing careers in Maine, but I, I came to Maine in my twenties and I distinctly remember the first time I saw fog and was expected to captain a boat in the fog. I, I remember it distinctly. And I wonder, do you guys remember your first time in the fog or at night and maybe what, what surprised you about it or what you learned from it? As a captain or just in it? Um, I think maybe not as a captain, but maybe when you had some sort of responsibility, because I, I feel like anybody can be a passenger on a boat in a fog and not really realize the intensity of it. Yeah. I, well, this is super early and not, um, wasn't when I was in charge of anything that important, but racing 420s, uh, and I was maybe 13 or 14 or something. But I, what I distinctly remember was, and we're in Camden Harbor, so it's an area that I know extremely well. I know which boats are on which moorings, et cetera, et cetera. And, um, and, and the fog, would, it was one of those days where the fog rolls in and rolls out and rolls in and rolls out. And, uh, and what was shocking to me was just how quickly you could become completely disoriented. Like, you know, if you... <laughs> And it was fine because we're in the harbor and then I can sail, you know, 10 seconds in one direction and probably see something I recognize. But but like how you can get totally turned around, you know, pretty quickly, even knowing the area really well. I, I think that was just really, I don't know, important for me to recognize that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Dan, do you remember the first time you were sailing in the fog? Um, you know, not not real distinctly as a skipper. I'm, I'm not sure I really can pick out that first time, but mm -hmm. running a passenger schooner, I absolutely dreaded it. That, mm -hmm. you know, maybe the first couple of summers, just, it was just not something I looked forward to. It's also not as fun for the passengers in that world. Oh, my God, I think the fog is so beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> they probably want to see the pretty islands. And people get seasick more in the fog, too. It's true. Right, it's so. true. It's <clears throat> nice when there's when there's a little bit of both. <laughs> mm -hmm. When you're sailing coastwise, of course, you can almost always find something that you can see through the fog, which is entertaining. But I always, I always felt a little bit like if we were on the schooner and we had paying passengers and you don't want to come off as being too wound up about worrying about the fog. You have to put on a brave face. Otherwise, I think that, you know, your guests see right through it and say, oh, mm -hmm. <laughs> there's something to be concerned about. Not that there isn't, but you, you're out there to have a good time as well. Mm -hmm. So I wanted to ask you guys about maybe rules you have for traveling in the fog. I, I actually do have a list of seven rules. And when I teach these, the fog, fog travel to students, I give them these seven rules and I say, any mistake that we make is because we didn't follow one of these rules. And, um, and they diligently write it down in their notebook. And, um, and I wonder if you have any hard and fast rules, maybe for the people listening, or I can add it to my list of things that, that you think we should always do when we're traveling in the fog or at night. 
very consistent DR plots. Oh, okay, sorry, that's for the fog. Um, at night might be a little bit different, but obviously having a really top-notch dedicated lookout. Um, trusting all of your senses, like you hear something that's gonna give you a piece of the puzzle. If you smell something, if you're downwind, directly downwind of a, a rock covered in bird shit, that's actually helpful. So trusting all of your senses um, and uh, communicating super well between the different parts of the boat from the bow to the helm, et cetera. Uh, what other hard and fast rules? Um, I mean, there's little things like making sure you're trusting your compass and it's squared up to the boat if it's not fixed to the boat. Uh, oh gosh, there's so many actually, but I, I think the biggest things, <laughs> yeah, are more around uh, proper navigation and vigilance. Mm -hmm. I know one rule I might ha I might throw out is uh, no extraneous noise on board. That's a good one. I know some people they have to have they have to have the radio. They have to have music or background or something. And mm -hmm. We almost never do that anyway, but certainly not in the fog. Mm -hmm. Maybe not even a lot of conversation. Because and that's because you, you have to use your ears even more to navigate. Yeah, we also didn't talk about the radio. That's other, the, the good radio, <laughs> not the distracting one, but of course, security calls and, um, and monitoring for security calls is, is super important, especially, um, you know, if you're a small boat and a, in an area that could have big shipping traffic. Yeah. I'd also say that any eyes available should be tuned to the conditions and be ready to report anything that they see or hear, hail mm -hmm. or smell, and not be bashful to, to uh, say something. And don't assume that just because you see something that everybody sees it. I might add from my, my list of seven rules, I'll mention three that we haven't talked about. Um, one of them was always stay in motion and not just adrift when you're trying to figure out where you're at. And um, always stay three steps ahead when you're doing your plotting, anticipating those, those next three waypoints that are coming up. That was one thing too that I wanted to add earlier in terms of anticipating waypoints, like when you're planning your day, knowing what your the error is so and this is when you don't have instruments but that like for instance if you cross a bay you know where you're headed but like have an idea of what's you know downwind of you to lure to mm -hmm. view down current of you or whatever so that if you've you know undercompensated or whatever you know what you're going to see so mm -hmm. so keep in mind that like your track might not be exactly what you laid out so you kind of have to know what's mm -hmm. where you might end up so uh, like a right. field of error, if you will, in terms of awareness. Right. And if you plot, if you, if you plot between waypoints that are closer, then your field of error will be smaller. Mm -hmm. um, I also had a, had a rule that I myself used in the fog was to, oh, let's say we were a, approaching or expecting to see a can, a green can. Okay. Mm -hmm. Specifically not tell the lookout what they were looking for interesting or where they were looking for it because if we wanted it to be on the port side and we expected it to be on the port side if they weren't looking to starboard and we were off we could miss it mm -hmm. yeah, that's a really good point <laughs> so, dan one of my favorite 
positions during um, night and fog travel is to be the lookout. I especially love it at night. I love operating the beam gun. I have. I feel like <laughs> I feel like I could give a forty hour course on beam gunning. Um, <laughs> And uh, that would drive me nuts if you didn't tell me what I was looking for. But I will, if you told me it was going to be to starboard, I would look to port and starboard in front of us and astern of us because that's just part of my 40-hour course. Uh, <laughs> but I, I do want to talk about the lookout position more because, Julia, you said that, the, um, that you would have a dedicated top-notch lookout. You, you went back to this a couple times, how important the lookout position is. And I feel like... Oftentimes, it's the one that there's no training for, you know, just go up in the bow and stand and watch for things or there's no, it's not taken as seriously because you don't have your hands on anything, not on a chart or the helm or a sail or anything like that. And so um, maybe we could talk a little bit more about what the lookout role is and what they should be doing. Uh, yeah. So they're looking for pretty much anything and everything. Uh, and when, like when I'm in the, uh, you know, on the quarterdeck or the bridge or whatever, and I'm trusting my lookout, that means that, that like that information is going to be delivered to me. Like I could literally not look around and I'm going to get the information I need to assess if there's a risk or something like that. So, um, so they're essentially the eyes of the vessel. I mean, granted, course all of us are going to have our eyes up hopefully but the dedicated lookout that is their one and only job all they get to do is look out and report what they see uh and ideally you know there's some context to that because a number of things don't need to get reported um but uh but yeah trained on what is potentially a hazard or information that's going to be helpful for navigation uh and that they just have one job and uh, to stay focused on that one job. And also another thing that I, f I feel like we all, I mean, at Outward Bound, for instance, somebody be sitting up on Bound Watch, they're having a great time, they're up there for hours, they're like, no, I'm having so much fun. But the reality is you can't actually focus only on the one thing of looking out and do it really well for that long. You definitely have to trade people around um, or shift back and forth if there's only a couple of you. Uh, so I think that's good. Mm -hmm. Good points. Good points. Uh, yeah, I, it would be very aggravating to me if, if my lookout was up on the bow and talking to somebody and not focusing 100% ahead or, you know, around. Yeah, yeah, super important to be able to trust them. Dan, how do they do, how do you do the lookout position on the tugs? Well, you know, sadly, commercially, my experience has been that it's, almost a little hard to convince somebody to do it, especially now where we have all of the electronics crew seem to think that with all that stuff, you don't need anything. Mm -hmm. So it's a, it's a little hard to, uh, in, in the experiences that I've had, it's a little bit hard to, to get somebody to really pay attention. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And you could be, and a lot of, a lot of commercial vessels are, are, understaffed mm -hmm. so what what do you do do you put a put a deck hand out on the bow of a barge for eight hours uh that's hard too yeah i think uh, when i think about the lookout role I, I really liked what you had to say julia about how they can't be out there for hours and hours and and still be doing a good job it can be really exhausting to be that focused on looking for things that you can't see and, they, and it takes a while before them before they appear in your vision. And I think something that I've learned about my eyes, <laughs> about my vision, um, well, in, a, in you know, a couple things, I guess at night, obviously the flashlights and, and the glare of things can set you back 
quite a bit when it flashes in your eyes. And so being up there at the bow and holding the beam gun and using it to shine on navigation aids and, and Benji would, Benji would say to me, light it up. If I see something, he'd say, light it up because, you know, it has that reflective tape on it. And so it might look like a little tiny red dot off in the distance, but it's a navigation aid. Um, when you shine the beam gun on it, you can see it a little better, but I think it's really easy to then just turn around. Those headlamps are so irritating because you turn around when they're talking to you and it's on your head and it shines them in the eyes. <laughs> so so I, we have a rule on board our boat is that you don't wear the headlamps on your head, even though they're designed to be worn like that. And the beam gun, you have to hold it over the side of the boat to shine something because if you're standing in the boat and holding it, if you just shine on the forestay or a shroud or a, a wire or a stanchion or something, it it could blind everybody in the cockpit for some time because of the glare, the reflection. And the, and I also learned that our peripheral vision at nighttime is much stronger than our forward vision, than seeing directly in front of us. So you have like this small blind spot almost directly in front of us. And so when you scan, you're looking forward when you scan, you know, your eyes are forward and you're following it. But mentally, you're also thinking about what am I seeing in my peripheral vision? Because um, it has to do with the way the cones and rods are positioned in your eyes. Interesting. I've always <laughs> feel like I remember almost this specifically in the fog, not so much at night, but, um, but like almost unfocusing my eyes to scan and I would mm -hmm. see something better that way, which I don't know if that scientifically is aligned with what you were just describing to you, but, um, but that's kind of cool. Yeah. Sometimes the fog also just creates these illusions. I think, mm -hmm. and I think I see, I think I see a ship out there or I think this or that, but it, it's, it's like the fog is changing thickness or changing color at that spot. Right. And so I like think when I you try and look at a star and it disappears, you know, if you'd focus on it, but if you look away there, it pops back up again. That's the peripheral vision. Yeah, it's totally cool. <laughs> mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. For a lookout in the fog, it's important to, that they know that it's very hard to, to, keep the horizon, I don't know how to say this, but you have to scan up and down as well as side to side mm -hmm. because you could be, you mm. could be looking in the wrong place. Mm -hmm. Right. You know, yeah. you could be looking down and not really realize it because there is no visible horizon. It's all just right. gray. Right. And you could miss something. So you have to look up and down as well. Yeah. So um, let's talk for a second then about the radar, because uh, that can act as another set of eyes for us in the fog and at night. Um, is there? How do you guys use the radar? Let me. I guess let's start with a broad question like that. How do you use the the radar? Well, radar is super good at night, especially when it's not foggy. I think radar is probably worse when it's foggy, right? Because you get all the, you get a certain amount of feedback from just all the water droplets. So at nighttime, it's it's even better. Mm -hmm. Besides, the screen is appears brighter, I suppose, um, although you should have it down as low as you can tolerate. I feel like the radar, the radar happens to be, um, Ben's in my favorite piece of electronics that we use yeah. for navigation. And I think it's because it's the only one that can give us information that we can't get anywhere else. Right. You know, like you can't range. look. Yeah, you can't look at a chart and see what you see on a radar, which would be things that might not be on the chart and your relative position to them. It also requires some active interpretation to kind of decipher what you're seeing in the radar. Yep, absolutely. I So I like it. I, I trust it 
not trust it, but it's essentially like having eyes. Uh, it's incredible, right? Except it's even more powerful in some ways because it'll, you know, pick up a breaking ledge, you know, the water there that you might not be able to see. It's so heartwarming having radar. It changes everything. <laughs> it's wonderful. <laughs> have you ever found, have you ever come across any objects that don't show up on the radar that were kind of critical? Maybe like ice? I going to say that, that the radar is good for what you can see with it, but you don't know what you can't see. Mm-hmm. And it could be a boat. It, it could be, a, you know, it could be a buoy. Sometimes a buoy is big and bright spot but sometimes it's very small so there's also huge room for operator operator error um like you can uh if you're using it well it's an incredible tool but if you don't have you know the gain proper or um, the range proper you can totally miss things uh like like i remember one time we were somewhere off the east coast um and we, I just was keeping the range at 24 miles, which is fine for most boats. But then all of a sudden I got hailed by what turned out to be an aircraft carrier who's making like 40, 45 knots or something that was, you know, I, I was checking the radar every 10, 15 minutes. And then all of a sudden they were like pretty close because I hadn't, you know, expanded the range to 36 miles or, mm-hmm. uh, or whatever it's capable of. So it, there's definitely, while it is extremely heartwarming, there's huge room for operator error if you're not increasing your range, you know, at a, at a, regular interval and if you're not um tweaking the 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 settings so that you're really maximizing um what you can see and getting all of the the useless feedback out of there Mm -hmm. that's actually a really good lesson because we often keep ours at around three or six nautical miles for the range Mm -hmm. which is great for us (laughs) a little bit of a horror story we i ran a tug that got a fancy big radar installed and it was such that sometimes, and it wasn't consistent, sometimes if you changed the range, you might you might be in a place where when you change a range, there was nothing to see anyway, you thought. But it wouldn't, it wouldn't pick up anything. And it, it, we had some close calls. And you thought it was working. Everything had been working before you changed the range. You almost need to have something in your radar I think to 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 give you a double check that it's actually working, yeah. and not always not always easy to do. If you were offshore, you might hope there was nothing to see. Yeah, that's that's scary. Yeah. So Dan, earlier you had told me that one of your pet peeves was had to do with the LED lights on boats, and so I I wanted to talk about that. What were you? What what did you mean by that? Uh, we would come into contact. Uh, let's say we'd been we were running at night, and the fishing fleet will be coming out of a harbor, and they'll all have. It's like they're afraid of the dark. And LED lights have been been a sort of a phenomenon that came up, came along and were very popular. And boats will come out with these giant forward facing LED lights, and you basically, all you see is a bright spot. You can't see their mm-hmm. green. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, so you're talking about like a spotlight and not their navigation lights, like a spotlight or deck lights like trawlers have. Mostly deck lights because mm-hmm. most LEDs, maybe there are some that are have a long range, but most of them are more of a floodlight. Mm-hmm. I don't know. that. They, they, Number one, they're blinding. Number two, you can't see, like I said, you can't see their navigation lights, so you don't know what direction they're going. 
And number three, they probably can't see either because their whole foredeck is all, they're just moving along <laughs> in dome of light. And it's, <laughs> once again, somebody put them on the, one of the tugs that I ran. And if you had them on, you couldn't really see more than, I don't know, 50 feet ahead at night because, but you were good and you, you could see everything in that 50 feet. But beyond that, we're not very good. I mean, it sounds so foolish when you describe it like that to have lights on, but yet so many boats have those lights. So many commercial yeah. boats, fishing boats and trawlers and things. The mm-hmm. research boats I was on, and granted, there's you know not a lot of traffic down there in Antarctica, but it was insane. I mean, they had all of the deck lights on 24-7 all of the time. Like we would have to do special requests to turn the lights off so that we could see stars. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, yeah right. And one of the most things is you have to watch out for a boat like that um, because I would assume that they can't see me. Yeah. Mm-hmm. For example, yeah. they're in their own little world, and and it's it's also it's also unlawful according to the international rules of the road because yeah. they have so many lights that are obstructing you from seeing their running lights. What's the purpose right. of the running light? It's for the vessel you're looking at, so you can tell what their relative position is. So it's very often that we talk to people and about night travel, and they're like, oh, well, if I, if I'll just never sail at night, or if I see a boat, I'll just turn and go the other way and stay out of their way. And I think that that's not always a possible solution even because you might get stuck out at night or you mm-hmm. might not be able to turn and go the other way. And I remember one time specifically where I was coming into oh Masonboro Inlet on the ICW and it was at night and the, the seas were huge. I was sailing by myself. The only navigation help I had was a lat- latitude longitude GPS. And um, I was surfing down these massive waves. It felt The whole situation felt pretty intense to me because um, the inlet in Masonboro Inlet is kind of shifty, and they have the the red and greens marking the whole way in, but some of them don't have lights on them, mm-hmm. and so I had to try to see the ones that were unlit, and um, stay in the channel because on the other side there was rocks, and you know the whole thing, um, it just super intensified by the wind and the waves pushing me around in my little boat, and we were traveling in convoy with another, Ben had already gone in in his boat, and then there was another couple that we were traveling with who decided to stay back and let us go in first so they could see where to go. <laughs> and I'm like, I was like, and they had all, all the gear, you know? So, um, but okay, we'll go first. And, um, and I was going along and triangulating and taking bearings and doing all these things, steering my little boat. And I'd see this anchored boat and I'd be like, man, I'm really, cl- I'm way closer to shore than I thought I was. So then I'd turn around and I'd go right back out because I was, I thought I was lost or confused about where mm-hmm. I was. And then I'd turn around and I'd go back in and I'd start heading back in and I have my bearings and, you know, plotting my way along there and just being really focused in this, you know, the whole moment felt really intense in my body. I, my, I'm shaking just thinking about it. And then I'd see these anchored boats and I'd be like, I'm in the wrong spot again. And I'd turn around and go back out. And then our friends hailed us on the radio and said, well, what's going on? And I was like, Ben's already in there. And I just I keep getting, I keep getting confused. I see anchored boats. And that's when they told me, oh, well, we've got our anchor light on so we could be more visible. Oh my gosh. And we're, we're out at sea, you know, right. quite, a, quite a distance from where they could possibly anchor. Um, and uh, it was very frustrating. And I, I think I find that that happens more often 
I've encountered actually a few cruisers who shine different lights than they're supposed to simply because it, they save power or um, they're more vis- they think they're more visible or they just don't care. Um, and I find it really interesting because I the lights on a ship are, well, one, it's kind of fun to see a ship and try to figure out what they are, or where they're going. And but then also sometimes it's really necessary to know that. Absolutely. That's a, that's a kind of a crazy story. I would guess maybe I'd be like, come on, people. <laughs> Not helping. Also, uh, I will tell you, I'm guilty of if I'm offshore and nobody's around, I, I'm guilty of, of operating with a, with a focused spotlight pointed ahead just so that I can see what's coming ahead on the water, you know, that, that the radar might not pick up a log or anything like that. But you ha- I think that it's important to know that you have to be ready to uh, extinguish that light if another vessel is present. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And if you do need to use it, you need to use it very limited and make sure, make darn sure that you don't point it at them. Mm-hmm. Like Teresa said about the, you know, you can lose your night vision in a snap. Mm-hmm. Well, we're running out of time and I want to just ask a few more questions before we stopped. One thing that that someone told me very early on in my career, they said, if you haven't been aground, you haven't been around. <laughs> and um, basically saying that if, you, if you're out there doing it, eventually something's going to happen. And so um, in terms of night and fog travel, night and limited visibility, do you guys have any lessons learned the hard way? I think it goes along again with the uh, my statement about the fog. I, I don't, I'm trying to think that I've not, come to grief in the nighttime, probably because of more heightened awareness. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Similarly, I mean, I think I've had a few more near misses. Mm -hmm. I can't think of anything. Like when I think about kind of crappy situations I got into, most of them were not. I mean, I've certainly been lost in the fog a lot, but on boats that are slow enough that I can figure figure it out. but yeah, I haven't come to grief as uh, as Dan said in the fog or the nighttime. So I guess that means we both will at some point. <laughs> well, maybe maybe you've had that those moments during the day. <laughs> Lots of near misses, though. My goodness. And those moments can be also feel very intense too. Yeah, I mean, there's still things you can think about there that I can think about where I get a pit a feeling in my stomach of oh my god, thank God it didn't go that way. Like, you know, and it was 15 years ago. Can you tell me about one of them? (laughs) Oh, I mean, uh, near collisions um, Mm -hmm. in places where we didn't, you know, expect a boat to be. I was one in the Chesapeake Bay one time and, um, and we didn't see them. They didn't, they didn't have running lights on and they clearly weren't paying attention. And, you know, I sprinted, I was actually on bow watch. I was a deckhand and I sprinted back and like was yelling, sounding the horn and they heard us like maybe but I have goosebumps actually right now talking about this. Um, they were able to tack maybe a boat length from us. Um, it was very scary. And we're in the, and it, at night, it's so scary. It's a scary ocean at night and uh, a collision would have been bad. We were going fast. They were going fast. I mean, for a sailboat, so maybe eight knots, <laughs> but still, uh, yeah. Fast enough. Yeah. I mean, I have another one too, where I kind of miscalculated it a little bit and we were, and, and I was on a schooner and we got a huge gust. Um, so we got laid down a little bit, so I eased the main, but then I had to tack because they were coming up because I'd eased the, eased the main. I couldn't tack as quickly, et cetera, et cetera. And then um, kind of everything came to a head. And I feel like I, we were pretty darn close to this ledge by the, by the time I got through the tack. And um, 
and it's just scary thinking about it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but here, here we all are, safe and sound. Mm-hmm. Maybe that would all bring up an, another rule um, that I that I can think of is when in doubt, slow down or stop. Mm-hmm. You could possibly lose some pride in doing mm-hmm. that. And I know mm-hmm. I've run a ferry boat, lobster boat across the bay, and think maybe something is ahead and it just doesn't pay to keep going full blast. Mm-hmm. You know, you, you slow down and you check it out. I second that. Yeah. People may say, what are you slowing down for? Well, because I'm not sure. And mm-hmm. you have to be sure. And that is one of the few things you can control. You know, you can always slow down and slow your world down. And I think that that's such an important lesson. It's, and it's also in the, in the keeping a safe speed is in the rule book as well. <laughs> right. And what is safe is, of course, a function of the conditions. Yes. I think uh, one of our kind of rules for getting prepared at sunset, for getting prepared for night travel, actually, is to consider a reef. And we would reef um, a little bit earlier at night than we would in conditions during the day. So in other words, we were prepared to handle more wind, stronger winds during the day, and we would reef much sooner at night. Uh, so before we wrap up, um, let's. We've talked about lessons. We've talked about near misses. Um, what about highlights of traveling in the fog? Like the best moments, maybe that sense of accomplishment, or maybe it's just beautiful. Is, is there is there a best moment? <laughs> can I can I pick two? You can pick two. Yes. <laughs> um, there's well, this was. Um, on the accomplishment side, and then I have a pure enjoyment of sailing one as well. Um, but uh, um, the accomplishment side was working for Outward Bound, and um, and it, the whole fog travel, and especially dead reckoning, et cetera, as much as there is a formula to it, it's also, as many people say, an art, and it takes a ton of practice, and you know, I definitely got better at it over the years. Um, and of course, I'm sure it's declined at this point because I haven't been sailing as much. But at the peak of my uh, fog navigation, uh, I I just remember there was one like big bay crossing, windy. We're you know we're sailing, uh, and and I hit every single navid perfectly. And you know the tide is changing as you cross the bay, but those lobster pots I'd gotten really good at like identifying exactly what the speed was and being able to you know, adjust my estimated position based on the current, et cetera. And so, and I think it was three navids going across the bay and, uh, and I nailed them all perfectly. And I was like, Oh my God, this is amazing. And that's probably the only time that that'll ever happen. Um, <laughs> and then my pure enjoyment one was, um, sailing into, and this is part of why it's worth the effort, especially on the night sailing. Um, is just the sheer beauty of being out at night. Um, and it's one thing I, I long for and miss a lot about sailing now that I'm not sailing full time. Uh, but it, we were coming into Monhegan um, and we'd been underway. I mean, it was probably two in the morning. We'd been underway. We'd gotten underway from, um, from um, Ilaho and um, I'd been underway for, you know, hours and hours and hours. And, um, and uh, we're coming in and we're, we, hear the bell, we know we're in the right place. And then I saw uh, like the porpoises in bioluminescence were like jumping in the bow and you could mm-hmm. see the outline of the bioluminescence. And of course the stars are up above and uh, I, it's just incredible feeling all mm-hmm. of that nature and beauty and everything. It was just spectacular. That does sound spectacular. So I guess my, my um, highlights would be if you're sailing at night would be dawn mm-hmm. if you're sailing in the fog would be that it lifted <laughs> you were ready you know you were ready you're part way across the bay and then it lifts and 
and it's like a weight off your shoulders and you can enjoy everything mm-hmm. just a little bit more. Well said. Well said. That, that is a nice moment. I think for me, my one of my favorite moments in the fog that I can remember, recall right now is um, I was sailing with students on a pulling boat and um, they were in charge of navigating. Of course, I'm supposed to navigate too, but um, I, and nobody knew where they were. So, so we were like, well, let's just anchor here and figure it out. And, um, and so they're sitting in the bow trying to figure out where they are. And in the meantime, they're pulling out peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. And, um, and so I'm like, okay, I need to confirm, like, make sure I know where I'm at. And, um, and I had, I had a guess, but, um, I was also confused. And so I just sat in the cockpit real quiet and I tried to look for things that I could use to triangulate with or listen for things. And I ended up using, uh, a call of a, a sparrow that I could hear on shore and I knew it was a shorebird and I was listening more and I heard um, quiet and then breaking waves and I knew the tide was going out. So I knew there was a shoal there and, um, and I used things that weren't on a chart that, I mean, I guess they are on a chart, but um, not like a navate or something like that, like a bell or anything. And it was the probably one of the only times that I triangulated completely using sites like that. And I would just t- use my compass on where the sound came from. And I pinpointed it. It was pretty exciting That's to see. That's so cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah, your senses are a good, uh, a good tool. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you both for talking with us, with me. It was really exciting hearing your stories and learning from you guys too. It makes me want, it makes me really excited to get out there again and sail. Thank you, thank you guys, Dan. It was great to virtually meet you. Yes, you, yeah, and you too. Look forward to meeting you in real life some someday. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for listening. You can subscribe to The Morning Muster wherever you get your podcasts or visit morsealpha.com. You can also find us on Instagram at morsealphaexpeditions. The music is by Tim Erickson, my brother, and you can find him at timericksonmusic.com. Until next time, stay found.